Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At the State of the Union address, President Joe Biden shouted out one constituency in particular. One in 10 Americans has diabetes. Many of you in this chamber do and in the audience. But every day, millions need insulin to control their diabetes so they can literally stay alive. Insulin's been around for over... Biden also had some choice words for the drug companies involved in that business. It cost the drug companies roughly $10 a vial to make that insulin. Packaging and all, you may get up to $13. But big pharma has been unfairly charging people hundreds of dollars, four to $500 a month, making record profits. Not anymore. Not anymore. The fact is, the price of insulin has gone up dramatically, more than 1,000% in the last 20 years. Bram Sable Smith was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes about 11 years ago. And even with insurance coverage, he's noticed the cost of his own insulin creep up over that time. You know, my first vial of insulin cost me about $25 after insurance. That was in 2011. And then time went on. In 2016 or so, I was paying over $100 for my monthly supply of insulin. That was two vials of insulin. So there, I'm seeing it right there in my life. Bram reports for Kaiser Health News, and living with a chronic disease means there are times when his life starts to intersect with his work. Last year, he wrote an article titled, I Write About America's Absurd Healthcare System. Then I Got Caught Up in It. The story Bram tells in the article is infuriating. For people suffering from diabetes, it's also not so uncommon. After he moved to start a new job, Bram had trouble getting a hold of more insulin. When he called up the pharmacy to get things sorted, he learned that his new employer-provided insurance wouldn't cover his insulin without something called a prior authorization. Basically, his new doctor needed to get approval from the insurance company before prescribing him more insulin. It's very frustrating for people with diabetes to go through this because it's like, you know, I've had diabetes for 11 years. I don't suddenly not need insulin tomorrow. Like, (laughs) I... I needed insulin yesterday, I need it today, I'm going to need it tomorrow. You said it took you 17 days and 20 phone calls, as you say, a lot of wait times to resolve the situation. And as you say, you know some of the shortcuts that other folks may not know. So you said that you consider yourself lucky, despite all that you had to go through compared to other diabetics. Why is that? Well, that's because I've written about people who have died when they haven't been able to do this. There's a number of people who have lost loved ones because they haven't been able to afford their insulin supplies. And that's lethal. 
when I'm looking at my situation, you know, spending hours on the phone, waiting several days, but I didn't run out of insulin. So in the scheme of things, I definitely consider myself lucky. Today on the show, why is a drug so many people depend on priced out of reach for all but a few? I'm Mary C. Curtis, filling in for Mary Harris. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So, Bram, First, I just want to get a sense of the scope of the problem here. I think some folks don't know just how common is diabetes in the U.S. So there's around 38 million Americans who have diabetes. But as you probably know, there's different types of diabetes. So there's type 1 diabetes, which is what I have. For us, our bodies have basically stopped producing insulin. And so we all need to inject insulin. For the people with type 2 diabetes, what happens is your, your bodies stop producing enough insulin. And for not, not all of them need to take insulin injections, and not all of them are taking insulin injections. But let's call it 6.5 million people with type 2 diabetes are. So there's about 8 million Americans with diabetes, types 1 and 2, who do depend on insulin to manage their blood sugars. Wow. I think people don't realize how many of their neighbors, friends, colleagues, coworkers have this. I mean, we're talking about one in 10 Americans who have diabetes. That's a huge number of people. And 
96 million more Americans have prediabetes. <laughs> this is a huge number of people in the United States. I, the scale of people with diabetes in the country is enormous, and we don't necessarily know it. And there's one more number. There was a report that came out last year in the Annals of uh, Internal Medicine, and it said that 1.3 million Americans had rationed their insulin. Uh, that's around 16% of people who use insulin, right around that amount. 1.3 million Americans had rationed their insulin. What effect does that have? If you're not using enough insulin, your blood sugar is rising, and that's dangerous to the point that that's what kills people. So insulin's been around, I know, for a long time. I think it was invented back in the 1920s. That's right. I mean, the, the history of the discovery of this injectable insulin is absolutely fascinating. I mean, basically, you have this nobody doctor in Canada who just shows up to the University of Toronto in 1921 with an idea about how to get how to create this medical insulin. And this professor there says, okay, that sounds fun. And he gives him a laboratory <laughs> and a lab assistant and some dogs. And then this, you know, famous heralded professor goes away for the summer and he comes back. And this guy in the lab had, you know, killed an unbelievable number of dogs <laughs> and also poor dogs, <laughs> poor dogs. And also developed one of the scientific miracles of the 20th century. I mean, th this guy was a nobody in 1921. And by 1923, he'd won the Nobel Prize because this was such a heralded, such a miracle. I mean, before the discovery of this injectable insulin, type 1 diabetes was basically a death sentence. And afterwards, you had this really effective treatment that was available for people. Now, the history goes on and becomes, it gets complicated. There's twists and turns. The insulin that's kind of the standard of care today came to the market around 1996. Um, that's the year that Eli Lilly's uh, Humalog insulin um, came to market. And from there, you know, it, it came to market at $26 a vial. And we've seen the prices increase on this newer type of insulin basically since then. And since then, uh, yeah, it's become more and more expensive. And between 1996 and 2016, one version rose in price from $21 to $255 a vial. So can you break down for me just why insulin prices are so high? Has the cost of manufacturing just gone up? So I think the way to think about it is that there's a Game of Thrones happening between insulin manufacturers, the drug makers, the insurance providers, and these middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers. They're playing this high stakes game with each other. And that game doesn't necessarily take into account people who are uninsured or underinsured. So let me tell you a little bit about it. You'll have an insurance company and that insurance company will have millions of patients. And so they'll go to the drug maker and say, hey, drug maker, we want to make your insulin the preferred insulin for all of our patients. But in order to do that, we want a good price. And there are these middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers who are actually doing that negotiation. 
So they're the ones who are going and saying, we want this good price for our clients, the uh, insurance companies. And so they'll negotiate with the drug companies and the drug companies will pay them something called a rebate. And then those middlemen, these pharmacy benefit managers, will then pass on some or even all of those rebates to the insurance companies as savings. So when you talk to the insulin manufacturers, when you talk to the pharmaceutical industry, they say the reason that these list prices are so high is because we're having to pay these rebates. And so we're having to raise our prices so we can you know, still make our money off of this product that we're developing and bringing to market. So that's the high stakes game going on. But what that means for uninsured patients, you know, if, if you don't have insurance, all of a sudden you're just seeing the price tag of insulin go up and up and up and up. And you're thinking, what's going on? I can't, I can't afford this. Well, last year, Congress passed a copay cap for some Medicare patients that went into effect on January 1st. And in his State of the Union, the president called for capping out-of-pocket insulin costs to $35 a month for all Americans. So talk about the likelihood that it will pass in Congress and why folks might be against this kind of legislation. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a few things going on here. So first of all, the people who know more than I do, you know, the people, the people who are paid to know these kinds of things are saying this kind of proposal is unlikely to pass the current Congress. Why? You know, I don't necessarily know, because this is something that's been popular with Democrats and Republicans. I mean, you might remember that President Trump tried to do a similar thing, capping insulin costs for some Medicare patients. For hundreds and thousands of seniors enrolled in Medicare, that's a big deal. Participating plans will cap costs at just $35 a month per type of insulin, and some plans may offer it free. So for everybody that's getting But the off, bigger question I have about what President Biden is proposing is, what's he proposing exactly? <laughs> <laughs> The reason being like saying that you want to cap costs at $35, it's not as simple as that. So we can look at some proposals that were in Congress last year as possible ways that you can go about this. So right now, the Inflation Reduction Act created the $35 copay cap for some Medicare patients. So that's that's just capping the patient portion of the cost. It's not addressing the list price, the, the price that the manufacturer sets for insulin. One proposal that passed the House last year, but you know didn't pass the Senate, was to create a copay cap for everybody with insurance. So for that, number one, there's a group of people who are left out of that, which is the uninsured, right? Because if you don't have insurance, you don't have copays, and therefore your, your copay is not capped. That was one criticism of that proposal last year. And the other one is that if you're just capping the copays, you're still not addressing the prices. So, you know, this big markup on these vials of insulin, you're not addressing the price of that. So, you know, you're capping the cost for the patients, but you're not capping the amount that the insurance is going to have to cover. And that might get passed along to patients down the line in the forms of premiums. You're not capping the amount that's, you know, going into this negotiation with the uh, manufacturers and the PBMs and the insurance company either. So I see it's a lot more complicated than just a simple cap. <laughs> it's a lot more complicated than just a simple cap. What's the mechanism of the cap? 
We'll be right back. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. Bram, I want to zero in on the story of one individual and how the price of insulin has affected this person personally. Tell me about Nicole Smith-Holt. Nicole Smith-Holt is a mother in Minnesota whose son, Alec, died in 2017 because he couldn't afford his insulin. Alec was a restaurant manager. He was 25 turning 26. And when he turned 26, he was going to get kicked off of his mother's insurance. He was insured through his mom, Nicole. And so he was shopping around for insurance plans and they were expensive. And he decided that the cheapest option for him would be to go uninsured so he wouldn't have to pay the premiums and to just pay for his insulin supplies out of pocket. He turned 26, and a month later, he died. He had gone to the pharmacy to try to get his insulin and needles, everything he needed. The price tag was too high, and so he waited. He decided he was going to try to make what he had last until his next paycheck came so that he could then go to the pharmacy and pick up his next month's supply of insulin. But he died of diabetic ketoacidosis. He died of rationing his insulin before that paycheck came. And what did this spur Nicole to do? She became a relentless advocate on insulin prices, a relentless activist. She has testified in front of Congress. She was a guest at a State of the Union. Her story was told when Amy Klobuchar launched her presidential campaign. This disgrace should never happen in the United States of America. Not with a simple drug that's been around for nearly a century. The obstacle to change? The big pharma companies think they own Washington. Well, they don't own me and they don't own Nicole. I mean, she helped organize something called the Caravans to Canada, where groups of uh, diabetics and other insulin price activists would get in cars and buses and drive from the United States across the border to Canada and buy insulin over the counter there to showcase the difference in the costs that Canadians are paying versus what Americans are paying. So she has just been, uh, you know, if you're going to put a face on the 
insulin price movement. That's one of the most recognizable ones there is. In 2020, in Minnesota, the Alex Smith Insulin Affordability Act was passed. So what does it call for exactly? So, you know, we were talking about price caps earlier. There's 22 states in the District of Columbia have all have now passed co-payment caps for insulin. What happened in Minnesota went a little bit further. It created essentially an insulin safety net so that when there's people with an urgent need for insulin, they're able to get an emergency supply of insulin for as little as $35 for some people who have an urgent need. And then it also creates a cap, a monthly cap on what people would have to pay for a year supply. So it goes just a little bit step further than even that copay caps we've been talking about. Well, you talked earlier that on the federal level, folks, as you say, who should know are saying that it's not looking likely that there'll be action. But you've just talked about something in the state that has made a difference. Do you think that it's changes could happen at the state levels instead of the federal levels? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are those 22 states in D.C. who have taken action and done those copay caps. But you also have a handful of states led by California who are looking to manufacture their own insulin supply. Wow. It's also worth noting, haven't all the three major insulin manufacturers, they now have patient assistant programs? Uh, have they had an impact? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, so all three major insulin manufacturers um, have new patient assistance programs. And there's also an initiative called getinsulin.org where you can find all of those programs. So this is something where, you know, if there's somebody potentially in need of insulin and you're trying to figure out where to go, you go to getinsulin.org and then you say, this is the type of insulin I use. And then they'll kind of direct you to the correct patient assistance program for the manufacturer that manufactures the insulin that you use. So there's been a lot of effort by the pharmaceutical companies to create these patient assistance resources for people who would need them. Now, the challenge with these types of programs is you have to know they exist in order to be able to take advantage of them. Oh, yeah. When you're dealing with crisis, it's difficult to then say, okay, now where do I go? You want something and you want it, you want to know where to go right away. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, are there any other developments that make you hopeful that a story like Alex won't be repeated? Well, I mean, what we're seeing now is people taking action on all sorts of levels, big and small. We've talked about patient assistance programs. We've talked about the federal copay cap for some Medicare patients. We've talked about the states that have passed copay caps. And there's also individual action that's happening as well. So you've seen mutual assistance organizations popping up where people, you know, this isn't necessarily legal, but people will share insulin supplies. So, you know, if you're on Twitter, for example, you, you might see someone pop up and say, hey, we have an urgent need for Nevlog insulin in, you know, say the Virginia, uh, Southeast Virginia area, something like that. And then that call out will go out and someone will say, hey, I have some extra insulin. I can get it to the person who needs it. And they'll organize getting the insulin from the person who has some despair to the person who has an urgent need for it. So there's action happening at, you know, big levels and small levels and, you know, levels in between there. 
as this issue has come into focus for a lot of people. Now, the number of people affected by diabetes is reason enough to care about this story. But I also wonder, do you think that this conversation about insulin pricing is somewhat of a proxy for talking about the price of healthcare and drugs in general in this country? Oh, of course. Of course. This is just part of it, you know? Insulin is just one drug out of many. And this is how our system works. This is the system that we've created for ourselves, for better or for worse. This is the system that we have. We have drug manufacturers, we have insurance companies, we have the middlemen. I mean, this is this is how our system is designed. The insulin conversation itself has become quite salient for the obvious reason, which is that this is a life and death matter. The stakes don't get any higher than that. And that's why insulin has become kind of the poster child, the focal point for this conversation. But you're right, it very much is a proxy for our system writ large that we've created for ourselves and that we live in. Thank you, Bram, for the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Bram Sable-Smith is the Midwest correspondent at Kaiser Health News. He also spent eight years covering public health and the social safety net for Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, listeners. This is producer Madeline Ducharme. I'm here with a little update to this story. On Wednesday, March 1st, the drug maker Eli Lilly and Company announced major changes to its insulin pricing. Eli Lilly stated that it would cap out-of-pocket costs for patients at $35 a month and that it will also cut the cost of the corporation's most commonly used insulin by 70%. Patients can expect these changes to be rolled out throughout 2023. However, changes to the product's list prices will apply only to older insulin products. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting help from Jarrett Downing and Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richman is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist for Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.